Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Recently, dear listener, I was talking with a friend about how when we started organizing young interfaith leaders in the D.C. area over a decade ago, it was because we didn't see a space for that sort of organizing in the city. And how quickly we became the 30-somethings and are now careening towards the 40-somethings that we thought were so out of touch. I was laughing because I went from doing programming for young adults under 40 to barely engaging with anyone under 25 anymore. And that holds true for the guests on this very show. So with that scary realization, dear listener, I've committed to featuring more young leaders on our program. And who better to start with than two bold organizers at the forefront of the climate movement? Isha Clark is co-founder of Youth vs. Apocalypse, and Tori Goebel is national coordinator for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. Although on opposite coasts and from different religious and cultural traditions, the two share in their drive to work tirelessly to bring attention and action to the existential threat of our time. And so without further ado, it's time to get into some interfaith-ish. So joining me today is Tori Goebel, who's worked with the Young Evangelicals for Climate Justice. I was introduced to by a previous guest, Reverend Mitchell Hescox of the Evangelical Environmental Network. And I was really excited to hear about the young adult component to that group's work. So I'm happy to have you join me today. Thanks, Tori. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here chatting with you. Awesome. And also with us is Isha Clark, one of the co-founders of Youth vs. Apocalypse, which is in retrospect, the name of the pump band that I wish I had in high school. Uh, so welcome. Thank you for joining us, Isha. <laughs> that would have been a great punk band name. <laughs> it would have. <laughs> <laughs> you could have done double duty. You could have had your, your activism and your punk band going at the same time. <laughs> I'll consider making that a new campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, you just bring the party and the concert wherever you go, and you've got uh, thousands of people wearing your shirts already. So <laughs> already your merch <laughs> army is out there. <laughs> we were introduced via my friend Joelle Novi, who's another courageous climate activist, who shared your video from Jewish Climate Fest. Is it was that the name of that event? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I'll say that my nine-year-old daughter was uh, watching your presentation along with me, and by the end, she was marching around chanting "Youth versus Apocalypse." <laughs> so, thanks for being an inspiration to her. Uh, especially as another brown Jewish lady. It was really mm. cool to observe that. Oh, that is so sweet. I'm sure she's she's among uh, many, many uh, younger kids who are, who are coming up in awe of, of your example, both of your examples. Mm. Isha, when did you first feel a connection between your identity as, as a Jewish person and the urgency for climate action? That is a great question. Um, you know, for me, I think I lived a lot of my life when I was younger and like, I'm only 18, so that's not saying a lot, <laughs> but um, the past couple of years have felt like, you know, drastic changes. But anyways, um, 
I feel like I previously lived a lot of my life very compartmentalized um, mm. and didn't really, um, you know, sort of saw saw the things that I was doing as like extracurriculars, you know, rather mm -hmm. than like things that are necessary <laughs> for saving the world or that are in alignment with my passion or what I feel my purpose is or, you know, so um i don't i don't think that i really um had a moment where i was like wow the work that i'm doing is connected to my jewish identity <laughs> mm. um and you know maybe part of that is also because for me my jewish identity is very much cultural rather than mm -hmm. religious mm -hmm. um and i've always sort of had an interesting um relationship to Jewish community. Um, but what I will say is that for me, one of the things that, that really um, connects my, my Jewish identity to the work that I do is through ancestors. I mm. really believe that, you know, the DNA that we all have is directly descended from all of those that came before us and so we have all of those people in us making us who we are um like on a scientific level right <laughs> and right. um so i think that you know i really carry that on both sides of my identity both the black side and the jewish side where there's just like this legacy of resistance and resilience and um just like truly um it, it's like almost like i can't put words to it like what my people my ancestors have been through and how they've gotten through and created you know beautiful families and art and culture and you know all of that kind of stuff so so that that is one of the ways that i feel like my jewish identity is really connected to the work that i do through connecting to to um my ancestors yeah beautiful and tori how about how about for you as an evangelical is there a uh clear connection for you uh between your your faith commitments and uh creation care yes definitely thank you for this question and thank you isha for uh your answer it's been great to just get to meet you and hear a bit about your journey for me, I grew up in a wonderful, conservative Christian home. Church was a large part of my upbringing. It was my social circles. And we didn't really talk about creation care, though. At home, we recycled. We really enjoyed going out, exploring God's creation. For me, I always feel closest to God when I'm outside. But aside from those conversations about recycling and exploring creation, we just didn't talk about climate change or environmental justice, much mm. less how it intersected with my faith. And so I went to Gordon College, a small Christian school in Massachusetts, and in a required science class, we started to learn about energy and the environment and the ways that the climate crisis was real and it was already impacting communities in the US and around the world. And we learned about things like land erosion, food insecurity, extreme weather, and I started to see how my neighbors were feeling the impacts of climate change and pollution already, and how it's a justice issue. Those who've done the least to contribute to the problem are bearing the worst impacts of it. 
And so to me, it only made sense that I would care about this as part of my faith, called to love God, love what God has created, and to love and care for my neighbor. So I see climate action and creation care as a key part of my faith. And it really wasn't until college that I started to draw those connections. And you mentioned that you actually had that um, that change in perspective in a required science class. And I'm curious how you approach within the Christian community uh, the tensions around teachings about science, particularly when it comes to uh, climate change. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's really important with Christian communities who might be distrustful of science is to just think about stories and really drawing people into that. Even though it was a science class, we were watching documentaries and hearing stories about real people and real communities. Mm. And so I think it's always really important to lead with that instead of data and statistics. And I think that's really going to help open hearts and minds. And it certainly opened my mind up to the realities of the climate crisis. I think it's also important to build on shared values and a love of scripture and to use that as a connection point between the stories that are telling us the impacts of climate change and connecting that back to our faith. It's also, I think it's really important to affirm people's identities and their beliefs and to not make assumptions about how they may or may not feel about science and climate change. So I think just sharing stories, finding common ground, and really connecting it to their existing values is a great way to have those really important conversations. Yeah. Well, what I've read about your backstory, Isha, is that storytelling is is a big part of what inspires you. Uh, and tying back to this idea of it being an intergenerational effort, I've, I've uh, read about the example that your grandfather, I think in particular, had in your life. Can you talk about, about how um, that activism has inspired the work that you've been doing? Hearing about the work that my grandpa was doing and really just like the eras that he was living through. He was actually born right after World War II. And then, you know, he experienced the civil rights movement and um, the, you know, the movement against the Vietnam War, which was sort of around the same time. And just like all of these really significant political eras and just hearing about how he tried to plug into those things um, really inspired me. And I don't think that I placed the connection between these sort of like almost like mystical stories that that they felt mystical to me when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But like, when I started to grow older, and I was learning about these movements and these eras that I had been hearing stories from, um, it made me realize that it was just people. It was all people who were living in a, the same moment, who decided to come together to try to do something amazing. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was really inspiring. Um, and so, you know, as I, as I grew older and I started to find myself in movement work, um, I think that's something that I've always taken with me, that in all of these moments, all of these people who we look up to, even, even who are still here, who are still alive, are just 
human beings like all of us living and breathing and feeling emotion and loving and developing relationships and having hard days and good days and eating food and drinking water, like all swimming, like all of these things that are just so human, they are. And they just stood up and said something and believed in something enough to fight for it. And so that I think that's something I really carry with me. So you, you were actually part of a, a group of young people that famously confronted Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, encouraging her to vote for the Green New Deal. And that moment was captured on video, uh, became an infamous moment for, for Senator Feinstein. But we have come to a point where our earth is dying, literally. And it is gonna be a pricey and ambitious plan that is needed to deal with the magnitude of that issue. And so we're here asking you to vote yes on the resolution for the Green New Deal because that is the only That resolution that will not pass the Senate. And you can take that back to whoever sent you here. So the government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all You know for what's the interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I've gotten elected. I just ran. I was elected by almost a million vote plurality. And I know what I'm doing. So, you know, maybe people should listen a little bit. I hear what you're saying, but we're the people who voted you. You're supposed to listen to us. That's your, How old your are you job. How old I'm are 16. You, I can't well, you didn't vote. vote for me. Well, she, I'm she, and what was so cringeworthy about that exchange was that it, it really encapsulated how older generations can be dismissive of the sincere and frankly, very rational calls of young people in society to make substance change before it's too late. So I wanted to ask you about what challenges you find when you're encountering older leaders to getting them to listen and and what have you found gets their attention? This is the infamous question <laughs> that we have <laughs> young, young activists. Um, you know, for me, I think that there certainly are challenges when working with older folks, like particularly around um, like sharing space and um, recognizing the importance of youth leadership. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even in the like the instance of Feinstein and like over and over again, when I've had interactions with power holders like that, for me, it feels much less about age and more about ideology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that a lot of, and you know, that, that in, in like certain ways goes hand in hand with age because, you know, different generations have grown up with different like prevalent status quo ideology and like throughout history, as time goes on, like the status quo just gets more and more progressive. And what we're saying is that we cannot continue to live and believe and practice the same things that the generations before us did because those practices and beliefs and actions caused you know, an existential threat for all life on this planet. That's what right. we're facing. And the reason why we are here and 
like the reason that those beliefs and practices created this climate crisis is because they are so grounded in exploitation and extraction and violence and oppression. And we can no longer live in that way. And I think that that is what this generation is fighting for. And so when we, you know, go head to head with other folks from other generations who, you know, haven't experienced that or aren't comfortable with moving away from the status quo of their generation, um, that's when I think that there's this tension. But I do want to say, I think that intergenerational movements are so, so, so important. And that's what I feel that I am trying to build. And I do recognize that the people who are most impacted need to be the ones who are leading. So yes, I believe that young people need to be living. And more specifically, I believe that young people of color need to be leading, you know, young Mm -hmm. people who grew up poor and working class, young people who are queer and trans. I think that people who are at the front lines experiencing the very systems of oppression that are responsible for creating this climate crisis, the systems of violence and extraction and exploitation, like I was talking about before, need to be the ones who are leading. And I also think that we need the people from generations before us who have experienced movements, who have you know wisdom to share and resources to share to make our movement more fruitful and powerful. That to me is what is really important. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up that idea of, of the intergenerational struggle being a critical aspect of it, that it, it, it shouldn't be about um, the past versus the future, you know, in terms of people, but actually that it is a collective effort. And when I see the work of uh, the in- Environmental Evangelical Network, um, investing in young leaders like you, Tori, um, I, I, you know, I see part of that working, right? That there's a that there's a collaborative effort there happening across generations. And one of the things that I talked about with uh, Reverend Mitch Hescox back in the fall was how that e- even for a group with evangelical in the name, talking about um, talking with the previous administration about climate was a total non-starter. Um, so I'm, I'm curious for you, how do you feel also reflecting on, on some of the ideas that Isha was talking about uh, around talking with people in power? How do you feel the current administration and Congress is doing so far uh, in response to your outreach? That is a great question. And it's one that I feel like I can't even fully answer yet. I feel like we're waiting and seeing why you say we know the climate crisis is urgent and we need bold, just responses right away. And so right now a campaign we're working on is around an infrastructure deal, the American jobs plan. We don't think that Congress should leave clean energy and climate justice on the cutting room floor of whatever plan they come up with. And why you say we are nonpartisan, we don't do this because we're Democrats or Republicans or environmentalists. We do this out of our faith. And we really value bipartisan commitments. We know bipartisan solutions are more likely to be durable, but that should not come at the expense of 
science and the reality of the climate crisis. We shouldn't favor bipartisanship over addressing climate change at the speed and scale required. And so as Congress, as this bipartisan group of senators are crafting their own version of the American Jobs Plan, we really do think they need to include climate change, clean energy, and importantly, commitments to target those investments in frontline communities, the communities most impacted by climate change, by racial injustice, and by economic injustice. And we can't leave those commitments out of an infrastructure package. And so just last week, YECA sent an open letter signed by over 250 young people. We sent it to the leaders in Congress, we sent it to the White House, and we sent it to the press calling on them to include those key commitments. And, you know, talking about the generational divide and the importance of inter intergenerational work, it is so important. And, you know, one of the sections of this letter talks about how leaders in Congress tell young people that we are so inspiring. We are the leaders of tomorrow. We're really going to make a change on climate. But the reality is Congress, they are the elected leaders of right now. And right now is when we need to act. And so we right. don't just want to be inspiring to members of Congress. We want them to listen to us and to heed the call to act on climate. And so I have been thankful for the outreach that the administration and Congress has done. I have been a part of listening sessions with the interior, with the EPA, even the White House, where they're trying to hear how young people, how faith communities, how frontline communities want them to act. And I think now is the time to put all that listening into action and to implement really bold and powerful plans to address the climate crisis at the speed and scale required. And so we are watching closely. We think infrastructure and the American Jobs Plan is a great step towards climate justice. And so I would love to say that everyone is doing well and hopefully in a few months we can say that, but in the meantime, we will keep fighting. Great, and and globally, you know, I, I know Isha, a lot of your work is, is tied um, tied to the Oakland area, but uh, as we were preparing for this conversation, you also shared that you were out in Minnesota uh, taking part in, in the actions around Line 3. So I'm, I'm curious how the work that you're doing is connecting in Oakland, connecting communities in Oakland with struggles that you've witnessed elsewhere, like in Minnesota uh, or even globally. Yeah. Um, so we're actually based in the Bay Area as a whole. So it's like, it's a, it's a it. larger geographical, geographical area. But um, thank you for clarifying that for me. Yeah, no worries. You know, for me, being based in the US, and I will say, like, I think that I need to do a much better job of understanding um, global activism. But I have been very focused on um, analyzing United States activism and politics and history um, mm -hmm. in relation to climate change. And the way in which I understand, you know, how we got here, because, <laughs> because when you're like a person who is fighting this existential crisis, you're like, how the hell did we get here? Like just trying to make sense of it so that you can do the work, you know? And right. so what I have recognized, and I think what many people recognize and are starting to recognize is that 
the foundation of this country and of many countries around the world actually is colonization and white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy and ableism and those systems we we have witnessed those systems in history being through the attempted genocide of native people and the kidnapping and enslavement of African people. That is the very beginning of the history of the United States of America. And so every single part of this country has been built out of that legacy, out of that history. And so it is in the fabric of who we are as a country, of how this country runs. And it was at that point in this country that the development of the climate crisis began. And so to me, that's what this fight against line three is about. It's Mm. about challenging this practice of white settler colonialism that is at the very root of this climate crisis. And in that, restoring sovereignty and autonomy and just frankly basic respect and human decency to indigenous people who have been the stewards of this land forever if we can do that then that's how we stop the climate crisis so that that's the way that i'm looking at this fight well here so here's a here's a question that I, I've been thinking about particularly this weekend and another presentation that I heard, um, this was by one of the national leaders of the U.S. Baha'i community, was talking about from, from her perspective, both as a person of faith and actually as a scientist, um, about the very things that you're talking about when it comes to systems and how it's impossible to reform a system that isn't set out to do the thing that you're trying to make it do um which is Mm -hmm. which is to be a you know a altruistic justice serving system right a system she she was making the comparison in biology um that every cell in a human body is part of a system and the system is um is is built towards creating and sustaining life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ultimately, a lot of the political systems uh, and economic systems that we find ourselves um, challenged by and, and oppressed by are, are ultimately not about serving life and justice. They're about serving profit or, you know, right. frankly, inju- injustice, inequality, so, you know, white supremacy, whatever the case may be. Um, all of these things tied together. So I, I'm curious for the both of you how you engage with those ideas because it's much harder to fight a a system, you know, um, and and it's it's I think it's it's even harder when you're both trying to dismantle an existing system and build build up a better one in its place simultaneously, um, and some of that comes back to faith. And and maybe some you know spiritual inspiration or or that 
you know, that connection to the ancestors as well, like you were talking about, Isha. But I'm just curious how you engage with that that idea of dismantling corrupt systems and and building up more more just ones. Tori, what do you think? You know, in my faith, I I have this belief from scripture that Christ is reconciling all things to himself, that there's this vision of reconciliation, of restoration between humans and God, between humans and the land, and humans with one another. And so that is where my hope lies. And because of that, I don't think we can silo issues or separate them. If we're not addressing racial and economic injustice, when we're addressing climate change, we're just going to keep perpetuating the status quo. If we say, hey, we're going to create all these clean energy jobs and solar farms, but we're continuing to exploit and destroy the same areas, if we're continuing to harm tribal and indigenous communities, if we're not making sure that jobs are good jobs that pay well, that help support families, we're not doing it well. We're just going to keep creating the injustice we're seeing with the climate crisis. And so it's important that we hold these very important things together um, in this fight for climate action. Isha, how about for you, this idea of, of dismantling and building at the, as, as dual simultaneous processes? Yeah, I 100% agree with what Tori is saying, that we can't separate um, because... <laughs> we'll continue to perpetuate. Oh, that rhymes. Um, <laughs> but I think what I would add to that, um, specifically in response to, you know, what you were saying about like people being, um, you know, turned off from conversations when, about climate, like when white supremacy is mentioned or capitalism or like, you know, any of these other like quote unquote buzzwords, like that you can't again like back to this theme like you can't talk about climate without talking about those things because you know if you want to break it down all of those systems of oppression at you know the core of how they function is about devaluing life is about exploiting life and that's why we're here and mm. so we have to talk about those things in order to really address the problem. Because again, like Tori said, if we don't, we will continue to perpetuate them. And the second thing about, you know, how we do that, how we actually like dismantle these systems and build something new, like <laughs> that is such a daunting task. But I really do believe that there is a way to do it and that now is the time. The reason I think that now is the time is because what we have just experienced is societal breakdown. <laughs> and you know, whether it be because of the pandemic or the economic recession or, you know, please pick one of the other like disastrous things that happened in this past year, you know, like that is our society, our global society, breaking down because it is built on top of this unsustainable foundation of these systems of oppression that devalue and exploit life. Because that is not a sustainable way of, of existing on this planet. And so because of that breakdown that we're experiencing, 
there has to be something new built in its place. Whether we build up the exact same system or we finally come together to build something new that is truly just and equitable and sustainable. And on how we do that, <laughs> in my mind, I think the way that we actually dismantle these larger institutions and systems of oppression is by taking power out of them and putting that power into community-led solutions that center equity and justice and sustainability. Because at the end of the day, power is distributed based on priority. And we have established that our society prioritizes exploitation and violence. And so the way that we dismantle that is by taking power out of those institutions and putting it into something else. And to give an example of this, I look to the defund movement, the movement to defund the police, because what they're saying is the American system of policing is an institution that comes from slavery that has been built up to intentionally in, like inflict violence on black communities and really all communities <laughs> of color and poor communities. And so that is never going to keep us safe. We can't reform something, again, another theme that you know is not built in the interest of safety and security for all people. So let's take the money and the power and the resources out of that and put them into solutions that actually center health and care and justice like hospitals and schools and mental health resources and rehabilitation centers and you know daycare facilities and job development and you know restorative justice all of that that is what is going to keep us safe and i think that's what we need to do in all aspects of our society while i'm listening to you talk i i'm i'm thinking about how uh, when you're in interfaith spaces you you hear a lot of uh cool words that you're not necessarily familiar with. And one of my favorites is eschatology, which is the study of end times. And, and I, when I hear what you're describing and what you were saying earlier, Tori, it reminds me, um, not by coincidence, that really what we're talking about is an apocalypse, right? And this idea of, 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 a, of, of something dying and a new thing being born from that right a new a new epoch starting or uh a, a new awakening um so i hear interestingly even though youth versus apocalypse is not as i understand it a uh a, a faith-based organization there is that um that spiritual sort of theme or message um uh there at the core of it I 100% agree with what you said about this, like dying and rebirth. I think that that is clearly an important thing that needs to happen in our society. Um, but just like when we first named ourselves Youth versus Apocalypse, people literally used to laugh when we would say our name. And now we are living through this time where it is undeniable that what we are about to experience and what we're beginning to experience is quite literally an apocalypse and there's no more laughter about it, you know?
Well, as we do every episode, I want to hold space for my guests to ask each other questions, anything that you'd like to follow up with each other about your personal stories or your life experiences or anything that you realize you may have misunderstood and want to understand better. So, Tori, I'll ask if you have any questions for Isha. Yeah, Isha, first, thank you so much for this discussion. If we were on camera, everyone would see me nodding along, saying yes. This has just been so great <laughs> to be here with you today. Uh, I, my first question is, you know, how did you and Youth the Apocalypse adapt to the online digital space of the past year, year and a half? And how did it empower uh, your activists as they sought to accomplish their work in this new world online? <laughs> just like well first of all like yes i 100 percent agree if i was on camera i would be like nodding like crazy i was like muted because <laughs> i would I'd be like yes oh my god like, <laughs> <interrupt> you. <laughs> but um yeah that's a really great question um it was really hard <laughs> it was really hard and um you know, I think in a lot of ways, it really um, strengthened our organization and gave us a chance to really look at um, the systems that we had in place and, um, you know, how we could be better. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, we're a relatively new organization. We, we just became our own independent group uh at the beginning of 2020 so it was like we were a couple months into this like new way of organizing and then the pandemic hit and we had to completely um rethink everything again um and i think that that really made us look at um who we are what our theory of change is what what we believe needs to be done in order to do the work that we've been talking about, you know? Um, and so, you know, just thinking about uh, back to the very beginning, like we were doing, the organizing that we were doing was mass gatherings. Like we organized climate strikes in San Francisco that had thousands and thousands of people. Um, the September 20th one that we did had over 20,000. And so, you know, we were kind of on that path and, and then all of a sudden we couldn't do that anymore. And so we were like, how do we still get this same message of, you know, intersectionality and um, everything else that we're talking about out to people? And so one of the things that we really started to develop is our hip hop and climate justice initiative, which is a really cool program in YVA where we use music, specifically hip hop, which has been like a revolutionary political art form since its beginning um, to talk about the things that we um, organize for. Um, and so we put out this music video early on in the pandemic on Earth Day called No One Is Disposable. And for me, and I think for YVA, that message really simplified without watering down what it is that we're fighting for. We are fighting for a world where no one is disposable because treating people as disposable is what 
has brought us to this state of climate crisis. COVID and climate change ain't far from the same. People in the margins disrespected and blamed. They put oil and gas infrastructures where we play. Contaminate the land, air and the rain. Our health in a game, our lungs are inflamed. Stuck in a cage with a severe corona case. Displaced by the climate while they profit from our pain. But I don't see them treating their children the same way. Hey, they try to bury me, but don't know I'm a sea. We are seeds, existing flow, but she have no idea. No one is disposable, we are capable. Rooted like a vegetable and taking back the time to give it to my people. Want everything equal, no government's free throw. We know how to water the roots. Need no politician telling us how to do it. Tori, do you have any other questions? Otherwise, we could we could go to Isha and, and go back and forth. Yeah, let's go to Isha and just go back and forth while we have time. What has the experience of organizing within your faith community been like? And what what are some of the the strategies um, and tools that have been you know successful in in mobilizing the folks in your faith community? Yeah, thanks for that question. So the main tool or strategy is first building trusted relationships and utilizing trusted messengers. It is our climate leadership fellows program is a great way that we do that because instead of just me going to campuses and telling people why they should care about climate change, there are people in the community having those conversations one-on-one or in classes and being a member of that community and speaking to that community, I think is really important. Um, So some strategies and some things we do, very similar to my answer on science, is really utilizing the power of storytelling and affirming identity for folks who grew up hearing that Christians shouldn't care about climate change maybe, or maybe they just didn't hear about it at all. It can feel a little bit like turning your back on your identity and your upbringing to care about this. When in reality, we can connect it to those existing values and belief systems without necessarily having to change our whole identity and worldview, rather just expanding it and living into it more fully. Um, So I think that's really important is to affirm people's identity And yeah, really just building on the shared values of the community you're speaking to. So when we're speaking to communities of faith, there is a strong value on the sanctity of life and connecting that back to things like pollution, which have disproportionate impacts on the health and well-being of communities, really impacting the life of people. And so finding those shared values and drawing the connections back to the ways that the environment and climate change are really impacting that. I'm going to just sit back. So so you all, please feel free to jump in if you've got more questions for one another. Yeah, I can go. Um, so I was reading a great article that Jack had sent around, and you talked about the importance of self-care. And even as we have this conversation where we're talking about really big issues like building down, tearing down systems and building new ones at the same time, it can feel exhausting. I'm often tired and the scale of the problem can be scary. And you talked about the importance of self-care. So I would love to know, like, what are some strategies, some things you do to care for yourself in the midst of this important but heavy work? 
That is such a great question. Um, And, you know, to be really honest, I feel like I'm still in process of figuring out what self-care means for me. And I, I actually think that that's a really important part of understanding self-care that it's something that like will evolve as you change and grow at least for me um but I think some of the things for me right now is like I'm it's funny that I'm in movement work because I'm very much like a mover in all spaces I'm a dancer um and so moving my body and being able to dance is such an important (laughs) thing for me that really keeps me sane through all of it um and just like creating in general this year I've worked on a couple of dance projects and I started getting into filmmaking so I've been working on stuff like that um and you know just taking time to really sit with myself and just hear my own thoughts you know and like really Mm -hmm honestly like have one-on-ones with myself like where am I at how am I feeling what is it that I feel that I need most right now how can I get that you know what just processing is such an important piece of it and I found that really taking the time to do that has made me a better activist because it's also time to really sit and think about what it what is it that I believe and what do I what do what do I think we need to do um, in order to achieve the things that we're talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is like during the pandemic, this is for whatever reason become like very hard for me, but trying to eat regularly and like drink enough water, something about the pandemic and the time. But like there would just be days where I would only have like one meal or just like, you know, work through the entire day and then eat at the end and realize I hadn't eaten anything, you know, that um, is really problematic. And, you know, it's important that we start to create for ourselves the world that we are trying to build. Um, Because if we can't do it for ourselves, then we won't be able to do it for the world. So, yeah. And I'd actually love to hear like your answer to that question too, if if you want. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks for sharing more about that. It definitely seems to be something that does evolve over time, like you talked about. And I think it's so important that we don't forget the basics, like staying hydrated and eating meals. You know, people can read these articles about how to care for yourself, but sometimes it does just look like checking in with yourself and seeing what you're Mm -hmm. in need of. Something I've been learning over the past year or so with the pandemic is that there's different types of rest. Like rest doesn't always just look like taking a nap. There's, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you need physical rest, but sometimes you need to just like do an art project and dive in with that or get outside and have a sweaty hike. Like mm-hmm. there's all different ways that you can find rest, even socializing with people. And so for me, it's really important that I start with checking in and seeing, you know, what type of rest am I in need of and how can I accomplish that? For me, getting outside is really important, getting outside and finding community reminding myself like why I'm doing these things. I want other people to have this access to God's creation and to enjoy their time outside. So that roots me in the work and my motivation for it. And it also helps to sustain me. Like you talked about, we can't 
be good activists if we're not caring for ourselves. So those are just a few strategies that I try to utilize. Mm. I definitely agree with that. I have a question for you that, um, <laughs> that it's like, it's a bit of a deeper question. And I, and I, in no way in asking this question, I'm like trying to back you into a corner. And if you don't want to answer it, like you really don't, but I feel like, and I also invite questions like this, if you have them, but I guess for me, like, as you have, like, such a great understanding, like, from what I can tell from this interview um, of, you know, the importance, like, of justice and how it's inextricable from this fight. And I really appreciate that. And I think that <laughs> that's something for people that is still lacking. And I guess in that, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, how you were feeling about what I was saying, you know, talking about, like, the history of the United States and, and like, it really being based on this genocide of Indigenous people and kidnapping and enslavement of African people. But in my mind, like, that's such a, such an important piece of talking about justice and like recognizing what that means in relation to climate change and just like time and time again over history, like Christianity is something that's been used to justify, you know, colonization and slavery. And I'm in no way saying that, you know, all Christians like believe in that. And I think that that's incredibly false, but like it is, historically accurate that like Christianity is something that has been used to justify things that you know extract from the planet and brutalize people and I guess I'm curious like how do you feel like that plays into your work whether it's like you know in conversations that you're having with people or like in within or without your community like just how does that how does that history play into your identity as a Christian person who is really deeply fighting for justice, specifically in the in the U.S. Yeah, that is like you said a deep question. It's a fantastic question. Thank you for asking it. You are right. In so many ways, Christianity has not only been explicit but has supported atrocities and has been rooted in white supremacy, particularly the white American evangelical church. And if we don't name those things, if we don't call it out, how can we ever seek to repair it and to move forward in a holy way? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm so glad that I go to a church that addresses it, that includes it in Bible studies and sermons on Sunday. So I think it's so important for churches especially white American churches, evangelical churches, to acknowledge the history, because how can we ever lament that history and repent of it if we won't even name it? And so I think that's really important, and that's why I'm so happy to answer this question. I see it as part of my role here is to speak the truth, and in the so many awful ways that white Christians in America have been complicit in things like slavery and forced removal of indigenous peoples from land i think that has been a dis it has been distorting the gospel it has been 
not a Christian thing to do, but that doesn't excuse the fact that it's Christians who have done it. And so I think what's so important is making sure when we move forward, we are rooted in scripture, that we are listening to black Christian leaders, to indigenous Christians, and not just upholding the same white American voices in faith that the media looks to time and again. And so I think yeah, naming it so we can repent of it, lament it, and to really move forward um, is just so important. And it, I see it as a key part of this work. Like you mentioned, we have we have to name it and we have to make sure that when we're caring for God's creation, we're doing it in an equitable way that doesn't contribute and carry on the sins of the past. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for answering that question. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure I'm going to yeah. keep thinking through and have more things to add as well, but I really appreciate you asking it. Um, one question I have for you, and I touched on this in one of my answers, but I'd love to hear your perspective on where you find hope in this work. Mm. Oh, that is a really good <laughs> question. Um, where I find hope. I feel like that's something that is always changing for me, to be honest. Um, and when you asked me that, it made me realize that I haven't thought about like right now where that is for me. <laughs> um, let's see. And I don't mean to be like, there's no hope, <laughs> like it's over. Like that's definitely not where I'm at either. It's just like, um, yeah. And it's okay. Maybe you don't. Yeah. Have do you? <laughs> no, I really. I feel like I just want to think about it more deeply. Do you have an answer that you would want to share first? While I'm thinking. Oh, to that question. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely find hope being rooted in my faith and my community, um, with my friends and family, and just seeing other activists and the work they are accomplishing, especially on the mm -hmm. local level. Um, but yeah, so it can be hard. This work is tiring. You know, we're talking about the apocalypse, like in your name. Um, and it's really daunting, especially as we confront things like white supremacy that's baked into our country. Um, it can be really hard to find hope. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, to be really honest, I feel like as an organizer, I feel like there are ups and downs. <laughs> and there are moments where I feel extremely hopeful and there are moments where I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how we're going to do this. And sometimes I'm in the middle and I feel like right now I'm sort of like in between that where I'm just feeling really like feeling the weight of the world. And just like, I've been doing a lot of um, like reading about, past movements, specifically the Black Power Movement, um, and, like, reading Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton, and just, like, thinking about that era, and just how powerful it was, um, because of, you know, okay, backtracking for a second, like something that I've been thinking about, and I promise I'll answer the question in this, <laughs> but um, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is how, like knowing that 
we are fighting against, you know, the core of what our society is, you know, like our society is white supremacy and it is economic exploitation and it is like this legacy of genocide and slavery and oppression and it's in, you know, the fabric of of all of our institutions and the way that we live and it's like the reality in which we are living in and how do you break that down from within like how do you tear that system down using the tools that that society is giving you you know and that has been like the big question of my entire like you know quote-unquote organizing career like how i hate that it was not not it's not a career uh, but like of uh, my experience as an organizer like as a person who just really is in this because like i want to live in a society where everyone can thrive like how do we do that from within so anyways i've been thinking about like we need to just start doing the things that make sense and like stop participating in this like false reality that like all there is is <laughs> violence and oppression and extraction and i feel like that's really what the black power movement did specifically the black panther party where they like just did it like and i guess that that's really what's giving me hope right now like studying studying that tactic of change that like you're not providing for my community so i'm gonna feed people i'm gonna build clinics in the area i'm gonna run ambulances i'm gonna do giveaways of food and clothing and i'm gonna protect people when they're in when they're being harassed by the police and we're just gonna start building a society that cares for our people that's by our people and that is something that's really inspiring for me right now just thinking about challenging the society that we're in right now and just starting to do the things that um you know our power holders are saying whether explicitly or implicitly are impossible um yeah i'm gonna go with that <laughs> yeah that's a wonderful answer thank you for sharing that yeah and i don't you do we have more time? Yeah, like, how many <laughs> questions do we get? I was gonna say you all you all are are giving me the wonderful gift of of having to create a a radio only version of the show and then an extended episode because <laughs> because I love all, sitting back and listening to all these questions. I want to be respectful of your time, but I'm I'm enjoying so much hearing the back and forth. So so you just tell me when you want to cap it off. Um, otherwise, I'm I'm very happy to just leave the phone lines open. I guess I, I would just love to hear, Tori, like what, is there a, a movement or a strategy or an organization or a person of, you know, the present or the past that you feel really inspires you? That is such a good question. I'm thinking, and hopefully Jack can edit out my long pauses here. <laughs> Actually, can I can I riff on that question, Isha? Because because I had a, a similar one. Maybe I can I can I can refine it a little bit if you'd allow me to. Um, yeah, sure. Okay, so so I'm I'm curious. Um, when we think of young people in the environmental movement, obviously lots of folks are thinking in the past few years of Greta, 
but I, I was curious about some of the peers in your circles for each of you who you consider prophetic voices in this movement, especially those whose names we might not know yet. So as you look around, you know, next to you and coming up behind you, um, who are those prophetic voices that you want to name? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm trying to think through an answer. You know what's coming to mind? Just name them all. <laughs> yeah. Put them all out there. <laughs> um, who are your people? So our college fellows are so great, and we're getting ready for a new cohort. And I just their energy, their enthusiasm is just so great. And I'm excited to see, you know, what they're going to do at YCA. We have an incredible steering committee, a volunteer national leadership group. They give so much of their time and passion and there's great people. Um, I think of William Morris, who's in Southern California. He was a field organizer and now he's on our steering committee and he just says, just such fantastic work. Um, so William Morris, we have Karina Newsom on our steering committee. She's been really involved with the Black Birders movement, um, and she really inspires me. And to Isha's original question, you know, what came to mind are the young people, the teenagers, the young people suing the government um, mm -hmm. about their inaction on climate change and the fact that the government knew and didn't do anything. So I'm just inspired by the young people who are using the tools at their disposal to raise awareness in really new and groundbreaking ways um, and to hold leaders accountable. Awesome. Isha, how about for you? Who do you want to shout out? Oh, there's so many people. Um, the first person I would say is Jem Ray Gonin. Um, she is one of the, one of YB is incredible organizers um, and it's just such a powerful voice um, and it's just like so educated um, on 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 pretty much everything and just always is inspiring me and, and teaching me new things so Gemray for sure Anaya Butler like incredible black youth activist with YVA brilliant poet um just like amazing human being i would also say um i was just with them yesterday <laughs> Jaden polk um and luna fife like powerful 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 young black people that um just like have brilliant minds and very powerful voices um and I, I was doing a lot of organizing with them in the summer around the, um, the uprisings sparked by George Floyd's murder um, and Breonna Taylor's murder and Ahmed Ar Arbery and all those people that were being murdered during that time. Um, and who else? Who other young people? Um, I guess those are the four people that really like came to mind right away. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, I think uh, as you were talking at the beginning of um, our conversation, Isha, it it's such a beautiful thing to recognize the, the connectivity of this work and and to acknowledge the work uh, that's the the path that's been laid by those who came before us. It's also important to recognize that our our mentors and our inspirations 
you know, can come from those around us, those that are coming up, you know, younger than us and for whom we're, you know, reaching down and, and helping guide and, and are doing this work with us in, in, in some cases as well. So I really appreciate both of you sharing all those names. All those names are definitely going in, in the show because we want to make sure that they're recognized and celebrated just as we celebrate the people that have come before us and laid the way. Mm. Um, so I, I want to thank both of you for, for taking the time, being so generous with your time today. Uh, like I said, I, I love just sitting back and being able to listen to the two of you go back and forth. And I hope that, um, that you'll keep in touch uh, mm. as you're doing this work and, and see each other as allies in this work. Jack, would it be okay if I if I say one more thing to like hopefully be inserted somewhere in the show that I didn't get to talk about? <laughs> of, course. <laughs> like, of course, go for it. I just feel like it's such an important thing that needs to be addressed, especially like being a Jewish person, what's happening in Palestine right now. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that we, you know, as Jewish people and as any human being cannot allow our freedom and our security to be at the expense of other people. Um, and we really need to call out the violence that the Israeli government is inflicting on Palestinian people and how, frankly, the U.S. is directly fueling that <laughs> because we give them more military aid than any country on the planet um, mm -hmm. or that any country gives any country on the planet. Um, and that mm -hmm. is very intentional. And we have to refuse as human beings, but specifically as people who are committing themselves to fighting for climate justice and into fighting for people and for humanity for what is right that we refuse to support genocide anywhere um and i think that is something that is incredibly incredibly important for me to say and i would say to any jewish person and any person really who is listening to this to really question how you are feeling about what's happening in palestine and recognizing that we don't get to have a neutral stance on this because this is about people's lives. Um, yeah, just had to say that. Yeah, and that was the, the focus of actually our previous episode mm. um, where we were talking about the challenges of, of really even starting to have these conversations when, mm -hmm. um, when our um coming back to this idea of narratives and stories um mm -hmm. when when our narratives around issues regarding um israel and palestine are so tied up in many times knowingly or unknowingly with religion and with issues of faith and mm -hmm. and how it's it's very difficult to um unravel those um from the emotional uh, connections that people have with that very small uh, relative, you know, territory of land rel relative mm -hmm. to the rest of the world, um, and yet, you know, looming large in the histories of our religions. 
mm -hmm. um, and our and our connection, you know, with with those histories. So thank you for acknowledging that. Um, and I encourage people to uh, to go back and take a listen to that to that episode. Um, certainly no no conclusions that were reached because that's obviously <laughs> right. a huge thorny discussion but we made the attempt and and stumbled along the way as 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 uh, as we as we tried mm -hmm. um all right well thank you know again thank you both for for taking the time to be with me today um and did i did i read right uh isha that you'll be at howard in the fall yes well, I will look forward to welcoming you to DC. Oh, you're from DC? I'm in DC right now. Oh, awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure that you'll do great works there and uh, look forward to hopefully meeting in person. And uh, same to you, Tori. I don't know if you come down to DC anytime, but next time you're in town, it'd be wonderful to meet. Definitely. Thank you so much for the invite to be here, Jack. And thank you, Isha, for this wonderful conversation. It's been great to chat with you for the last hour. Yeah, for sure. I hope we stay connected after this. Definitely. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Tori and Isha, you can learn more about their work at yecaction.org and youthversusapocalypse.org. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find podcasts. We are podcast platform agnostic, all paths seeking our show are valid. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish, so keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.